Hello, and welcome to episode four of Formatted to Fit Your Screen, the show where two people who have seen a movie have a conversation. I'm your host, Zach Tennant, and I'm going to try and make this quick because, for one thing, I'm about to go to a movie for the first time since March of 2020. Uh, But secondly, it is I closed all my windows and turned my fans off, and I am dripping with sweat right now, so I'm going to try and make this quick. I was joined by Kyle Zervinsky on this episode, and we discussed Wes Anderson's Rushmore from 1998, Wes Anderson. We know him, we love him, we went back to, not the start, but more or less the start of his career, and this was a great episode. I had a lot of fun. Kyle, as you're going to hear, is gregarious, he is loquacious, um... Kyle's a cool guy. He wears many hats. He's a film producer, a podcaster in his own right. You can hear him on the terror table currently. Uh, And he's a frontman in a post-hardcore band, River Sleem. I think I will link to it. But definitely check them out and consider buying their tape because funds will go to Prairie Harm Reduction, which is truly a wonderful organization. And it gives you an opportunity to literally do more than the Saskatchewan government. So consider doing that. If you're enjoying the show, thank you. Uh, Please consider rating, reviewing, subscribing, telling your friends about it, everything, anything to boost the publicity and the notoriety of the show would be greatly appreciated. Join me again at the end of the episode, and I will let you know who will be joining me next time. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Kyle Zervinsky about Wes Anderson's Rushmore. This is TBS. So we're here today talking with Kyle Zervinsky, and Kyle, I've known you for a few years going back now, and you were a guest on my previous podcast as well. Came on with uh, Dan, and you guys, we talked about funny people, as I seem to recall. That's correct. We did do that. And that was a rip-roaring good time over the course of, I feel like that record... It ended up being a two-parter, as I remember, but that one went for, I'm going to give a good, like, five hours that record took. Oh, we were there all night. I don't that, know. Was a, <laughs> that was a barn burner, as they say. I agree. Well, you're, you're, you're leaving out the, the episode of Blended as well. Oh, which, me did. Yes. Which I believe I, I like to think that I famously ended the Enter Sandman podcast by uh, being there and maybe just unfortunately burning it down for you, too. I, I apologize to this day. That's that's not that far off from what actually happened, but this has. What can you this do? Is, yeah, exactly. This is giving major uh, funny people throwbacks for me, though, because I don't know where how it is where you're recording, but I just turned off all my fans and closed my windows, and it's I want to say 47 degrees today and like quite humid. Yeah, um, I'm in a basement with no windows, so I don't really know anything. Or really any detail about anyone at the point at this point, except Max Fisher, which I'm sure we'll get into. Wonderful. Yeah, so today we're talking about Rushmore from 1998, directed by Wes Anderson. This was a suggestion of yours, and you, from, I, I thought you were quite excited for this one, so I was stoked to get into this one with you. Uh, you have a history with this movie, I understand. Yeah, you know, this, um, <laughs> this movie... I guess I've always called this like my favorite movie, basically, um, for probably a couple different reasons. But um, just listening back to the you know the other guests you've had on the show and the movies that have been covered and the way they've been kind of talked about and sort of uh, not even necessarily like nostalgic, but in a very like uh, admirable, uh, admirable like uh, tone. I felt like there was really no other film I could like bring to the table than Rushmore because. 
it yeah it kind of like started me just getting into movies i guess is the short um the short answer of why this film movie so like important to me um i think wes w- anderson for people our age i think whether it's this one or royal tenenbaums or even you know some of the later ones as well mm-hmm. i feel like he's definitely been that guy for a lot of film fans of our generation and of like the past 25 years now i think you're absolutely right there's um well now wes anderson is more like not that he was ever really that obscure i think a lot of us wanted to think he was but in all actuality he never really was that obscure um but but now so uh that's uh even less of the case right because he's clearly a well, I'm, I mean, uh, Grand Budapest was nominated for Best Picture, so I mean, it can't really uh, escape uh, notoriety at that point. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Zach. I think uh, there there is definitely a, f- a couple of his films that connected with a certain generation that kind of had led them into probably becoming Criterion Channel subscribers in the end. <laughs> I th- yeah, I th- that's the kind of people that we're talking about for sure. Mm-hmm. The thing about this is like, the reason I guess I was... I, I'm nervous and excited to talk about this movie because I always forget like how deeply ingrained it is like within my psyche. <laughs> and um, it's not even that like I've analyzed every scene or that like I know or that I even know every line. It's not really like that kind of experience for me. It's more just like when I think about films that like take a certain part of my life, specifically like high school, um, this is just like that movie for me. And it kind of goes back to like, um, I guess this would be me entering high school, like end of, well, whatever you want to call it, elementary school, junior high, however the listeners here um, use the nomenclature. Uh, But um, so (laughs) my first time I ever heard about Rushmore was actually from reading a book called Everybody Hurts, An Essential Guide to Emo Culture. Oh, incredible. (laughs) And uh, this is this is a really interesting read, especially in 2021. Uh, oh, I can <laughs> imagine, yeah. This came out in 2007, and it's a very comprehensive look at what at the time was emo or even like punk alternative culture. So it's Rushmore, um, it's A Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> it's that. My Chemical a- Romance, yeah. It's all of that and a whole lot more. Um, paging through this, because I got this when it came out, and it was written by some of the writers for Alternative Press magazine. <laughs> um, and just fair warning to the listeners, I'm basically like, uh, I've been on, I don't even know, hundreds of podcasts at this point, but I think this... You're a, pr- a professional podcast <laughs> guest. You you wear many, many hats, but I would have to say podcast guest would be right up there. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. I'll take it. But I have to say, like at this point, <clears throat> this is like talking about Rushmore is probably I've like given out so many details about myself over the years. Ones that I probably will forget in the future or regret <laughs> as well. But I think talking about Rushmore might be like one of the more personal things for me. So I'm a little excited about this because. Okay. So I'm in grade seven. I had just pick- I just got my mother to order. Uh, Everybody Hurts, an essential guide to email culture from McNally Robson for me because you couldn't get it on the shelf. You had to, you know, what's it called? You had to get it specifically. You had to request it. And only Saskatoon one copy- emo is not that popular. Yeah, it was <laughs> still a yet. subculture. Yeah, it's still a subculture. Um, anyway, I have I acquired this book. And in this book, 
it's basically like a survival guide. It's what you would sort of see on BuzzFeed now, I guess. Like, a, 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 what is it? A listicle? Is that is that it's referred to sometimes? There's a lot of uh, articles of that nature in this <laughs> in this book, uh, which was great because honestly, for like a 12 year old, that was a really nice read for me, <laughs> you know, because um, I. You know, I've never been too much of a reader, unfortunately. And but we didn't have BuzzFeed yet. That was the next best thing, pretty much. It absolutely was. Yeah. And so paging through this, they had a section of like, I guess like DVDs that would be not even necessarily considered like emo movies, but like movies that uh, benefited or uh, influenced the culture in one way or another. And Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, actually, which I forgot about, are both in this book. Um. And so that was the first time I ever heard about Rushmore. And at the very same time, I was obsessed with bands like Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance and, you know, whatever, the the big emo bands of the time. A lot of people my age were, of course. Um, And, like, bands like Fall Out Boy had their songs named after lines straight out of Rushmore. Like, there's a song by Fall Out Boy called Tell That Mick. He just made my list of things to do today. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So... And I loved, I have never had a platform where I could tell people this really obscure piece of Fall Out Boy history, and I'm so happy I have it right now. Um, <laughs> Fall Out Boy used to play uh, secret shows uh, where they would like have uh, advertisements for their shows and posters for their shows be plastered around uh, Chicago under a different name. Now, Zach, what do you think that name was? Well, Rushmore would be too on the nose. Um, a little on the nose. Yeah, a little on the nose. Herman Bloom seems like it could make a good name for kind of an emo band, but I'm guessing it's not that. It, Herman Bloom is a really good guess, and honestly, a, kind of a good name. Um, but it was Saved Latin. They'd go by Saved oh, Latin. Oh, there we go. And, you know, it's just it's little details like that. And, and then even like the brand new song, Sick Chance of Gloria, Glory Fades. I'll glaze over that a little bit, though. But, um, uh, you know, <laughs> there's there's things like that that were like, ingrained in like this subculture or even really mainstream culture honestly of you know um, punk and emo and things like that that were so important to me at the time and more or less still are to an extent um, that Rushmore was kind of like this weird like connect the dots kind of scenario for me Uh, and so when I finally got around to watching the film it like really connected with me initially in that regard because I was like making these little connections that I thought were super cool and you know it was a it was a film that none of my friends had seen so like it felt like I was kind of like unearthing something special but then on top of that you know it was the way the film was constructed and presented that influenced me so it it was a it was just kind of like a I don't even know a triple whammy a quadruple whammy it it just hit me on all cylinders so a pentaveral whammy I believe is what that is (laughs) Yeah, no, Perfect. I Perfect. I I have so much of that uh, same stuff and same sort of history with this movie. And I was coming at it from a slightly different angle. Because right. around this era, I, I was listening to Fall Out Boy. I was listening to My Chemical Romance. But I was definitely never as into the emo thing. And it mm-hmm. sort, sort of stressed me out a little bit. It was a little too intense for me, I think, at the time. I was a, it was a lot of... Sh- it was a lot of pressure too. Honestly, you had to get your bangs just right. And then, well, know. exactly, and like, and and know where to buy the cool clothing and stuff like that. So I was not as much one of those kids. Mm-hmm. What I was though, I was definitely a big comedy nerd, and I loved okay. like 
SNL and people who had come from that world and gone on to have like big comedy careers. And I feel like I had seen a lot of the Bill Murray movies, but like Space Jam and like, <laughs> like not, I had seen Ghostbusters and I had seen probably some of the earlier, like the true classic Bill Murray movies, but I had also grown up on like the stuff that he was doing basically up until Rushmore, which is like larger than life. The movie where he has the elephant that he has to take care of and like not, Oh, I've not really his that. his finest era, like a lot of kind of <laughs> shitty studio comedies and stuff like that. Right. This is like, the, would, this is like early 90s kind of Murray. Is that, is that what that would be? Or Yeah, basically like his la- his like waning days as a straight up like comedy star before he did like a hard course correct on this film. And mm-hmm. then I feel like found a niche for basically the rest of his career. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, But so, I would yeah, see more or less Zombieland, of course. And Zombieland, yeah, that is, yeah, he sort of does, sometimes he'll just have comedy moments, but it does feel like this was a turning point. And even watching it this time around, having not seen it in a few years, him and uh, Jason Schwartzman, they both, we've both seen them do this thing in a Wes Anderson movie so many times at this point. Yeah, but that's right. But they've never looked younger. It's never been fresher. It it's does feel had, fresh. It, yeah. it feels so fresh watching this. Um, no, that's that's a good point. I think I think we'd be remiss with not kind of looking at Murray as a fixture of this film because I'm not really a Murray historian. I'm getting the sense maybe you are too to a degree. But from what I understand, this of course, yeah, this is the turning point of like Murray becoming an actor. You know, like this is kind of what changes sort of the public perception of of him as um as a performer, I suppose, at this point in his career. Well, I th- I think he, like, because if we just want to compare him, <clears throat> like, to the people that he came up with on SNL, like, Chevy Chase had a nice mm-hmm. career as a comedy star, probably about the same degree of a star as Bill Murray was, him doing, like, the vacation movies and stuff like that. But then by the time he got to the mid-90s, he was almost entirely washed up. And other than, like, I guess Community kind of briefly brought him back more than a decade after this. Yeah. But his right. career never got the kind of shot in the arm midway boost that it did for Bill Murray. And then someone like Dan Aykroyd, I think, really floundered in the 90s and has continued, like, he, for how big yeah. of a star he was at one point, he never was able to really capture it. Because, like, those funny, those guys that are funny and kind of zany when they're young... You can't just sustain that forever, and we see that with like the comedy stars that we grew that, up yeah. with, and the people who boom the big. Yeah. Well, a lot of those, a lot of comedians, unfortunately, you know, they end up becoming becoming what they're parodying, right? Like they become the same sort of like they become the same character they're describing in their act, and then at that point, it's hard to hard to navigate where to go from there. Well, um, and you're a breath of fresh air when you show up and then when everyone's trying to do your thing and you've like thoroughly spread your comedy seed and really like shown everyone the beauty of what you can do, mm-hmm. then it's not that special anymore and you've kind of been doing it for a while. What is interesting is like I uh, I was taking a deep dive into the Rushmore <laughs> Criterion Collection Blu-ray for this watch. And so you're the, you're a, a dedicated fan. Oh yes, 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 yes. And I highly recommend the Blu-ray if anyone listeners are interested in picking it up because it's really it's a nice package. It's one of the more uh, I guess well-developed 
uh, Criterion copies you can pick up. Um, That's him but, on the cover with his like little um, go kart. Yeah, and it's a it's a Is fun it, illustration. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on it, there's actually a. I've never seen these before. I didn't. I didn't even know they existed actually. And they are a series of MTV Movie Award shorts that I guess were commissioned by. I don't even know if they were directed by Wes. I assume they were uh, to star the characters of Rushmore where they would recreate scenes from movies that were nominated from the 1999 MTV movie awards. I've um, definitely seen this exact same premise, but with Napoleon dynamite from a few years oh, later. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. That <laughs> where he's in like Batman begins and stuff. Yeah. 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 This, what, what is actually there were definitely worth the watch because they're nice companion pieces because it's basically Max Fisher's, Max Fisher's players recreating them on stage. So it's the really fun watches, especially if you enjoyed this movie at all, or you get a kick out of the, the kind of elaborate uh, <laughs> stage plays that Max makes. Uh, but one of the movies that they recreate is the Truman show, a scene from the Truman show. Uh, the scene where Jim Carrey's character starts to kind of like uh, realize what his life is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's funny, just you talking about kind of like, uh, you know, comedians um, exploring, you know, their acting chops to, you know, you know, various degrees of success. Because at that and at that time, it's paralleling right to Jim Carrey, who was still a pretty fresh face, more or less. But something like the, at Truman the height show, of his powers at that time, then I think the Truman Show was the first time since he broke so huge as a comedic star. Exactly. That he went a different direction with it. Yeah. Which is funny because I mean you have so you have that happening with uh, you know Jim Carrey and then you know Bill Murray who's obviously more of a established comedian of course but um, you know though that kind of tone and shift comedic comedic shift for actors happening at the same time is kind of an interesting parallel uh, one that I, a connection that I didn't make before but interesting now and I think I think this might be 1997 but right around this same era too is when we have Robin Williams winning an Oscar for Goodwill right. Hunting. Right, which right. he definitely went back and forth more between the two different worlds. I don't think he ever did like a Bill Murray thing where he like bid comedy basically adieu, but no, not too much. I think, I think he is kind of, he's pretty unique in that sense. And, and maybe he was almost like the outlier and like no one could really, you know, even try attempt to show him up. But I think with, with, with Murray in this film, like he was getting nominated for like big awards, he was getting notoriety, which which is great because I think that put us that clearly put a spotlight on the film in general and on Wes as a director and you know everything that was coming up from Rushmore, which now is not at the time was kind of like a a good Samar- Samaritan almost act in a way, but now that's this is common practice now to kind of have your one big star in a indie movie full of nobodies more or less. Um, but in and for big stars to have like indie clauses in their contracts and that they kind of want to have these mm-hmm. movies scattered along their filmographies and they want to have movies 10 years from now that no one in mainstream culture <laughs> has heard of. It's a bit more, yeah, it's a bit artificial, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's more hollow now, but I don't know from reading up on it. It always kind of sounds like Murray kind of was doing Wes a solid, you know, that's, that's kind of how it, how it comes. And I'm, I'm sure you read some of the IMDB trivia as well. Uh, there's one note. We were on both there. going through the IMDB <laughs> trivia and putting in little footnotes and making painstaking corrections and stuff like that in preparation for this. 
that's funny. Okay, so so there's the one about I guess it's, I guess it's a famous story, but it's also one I just read about um, how Wes Anderson wanted to have some sort of elaborate helicopter scene in, in Rushmore, um, and he couldn't get the money from was it Buena Vista or I guess Disney technically. Disney, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, he couldn't get funding for the scene to be shot how he wanted it to be made, and it was causing him onset stress. So Murray, you know, just decided to cut him a check to pay for it. And I was watching again on the Blu-ray uh, special features. He has a interview with oh god, what's his name? He was canceled recently. Hold on, what is his name? The guy who used to do sixty minutes. Um. Oh, is it you're thinking of Charlie Rose? Is it? Yes, or? Charlie Rose. Okay, this yeah. is Charlie Rose. Anyhow, um, he corrects and says that it wasn't seventy-five thousand dollars. It was twenty-five thousand dollars. So, for all the listeners out there, you guys can sleep well tonight knowing that Bill Murray only gave him $25,000. Is not as generous as IMDb Trivia was suggesting that he is. That's exactly right. And I, I, I apologize. I mean, we're already 20 minutes in, but I apologize to everyone listening because I, be, I will be giving you bits of information that no one on human earth really needs to know. Um, well, I, speaking of no one needs to know, I can't let the moment go by without remembering to loop back to this. So... My beginning history with this movie is I would see it on the shelves at VHQ, later became Movie Gallery, on Clarence Avenue in Saskatoon, right across the street from what became my high school. But this would have been before then, and then I remember, I don't know if I was reading it online or if they aired it on TV or something like that, but they had on Much Music up here in Canada a special about all the different VJs, and... I'm going to ask you, Kyle, if you remember Devin Soltendeek. Of course, he won the DJ search. He did want the, <laughs> the VJ first, search. The very first Much Music VJ search. Um, he, was, he was the winner of that, but they asked him what his favorite movie was, and he said that it was Rushmore. And so I would oh. see, not the Criterion case, but just like the movie poster DVD case, and I would see that on right. the shelf, and I would see Bill Murray and this kid who... And more or less sort of looked like me. I'm guessing probably sort of looked like you at that yeah, age as for well. Sure. Absolutely. So I would see that and I would wonder, oh, what's this? You know, Bill Murray, the the funny Space Jam Ghostbuster guy. What's, what's this <laughs> kind of him with a mustache? What's this about? And then I think I probably I didn't end up renting it. Had kind of a setup with the local library where the librarians, I would sweet talk them and they would just let me rent whatever I felt like, no matter what it was rated. So I feel like I probably didn't get it from VHQ, but ended up getting it from the library. And then, yeah, when I saw it then, that was just like, uh, that would have been the first Wes Anderson movie I saw. Later, probably followed up pretty quickly by Bottle Rocket. I went back to that one. Yeah, yeah. But really changed things in the moment. And I hadn't seen this one in a long time, and I was really impressed watching it back this time, how so many lines of dialogue just, like, they're coming out of my mouth as I'm hearing them and, like, how much <laughs> of this movie... I must have watched it a lot of times in, like, a short span of time. I feel like a lot of movies that I saw in high school, you probably can relate, kind of the same thing. You see a movie once and then you see it, you know, half a dozen times in a single year. Totally. And then you maybe don't revisit it for a while, but it really sticks with you. Well, even at that point in your life, when you watch a movie, it's almost like every movie you're watching, you're watching for the rest of your life. Everything, it's your like brain is just soaking in that information at a far different rate than I currently do when I watch a new movie. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. 
That, that's funny, man. I, I totally... I, I think the first time I actually saw this film was on Movie Central, which was like like the kind of like a premium TBS, I suppose. Like you'd have to... I remember my family, we just got like digital cable in our house. Yeah. And you had to like subscribe to Movie Central for the month to watch like... I guess unlimited movies, but it was like still curated. So it wasn't like a a service of any kind. Um, There was a similar channel to that because we never had um, like digital cable or anything like that growing up. But there was whatever the other version of Movie Central was where it was just a movie channel. It was channel 29 for me. But they would air movies in full without commercials, unedited. So you would get like the nudity and the whatever. Right. But it was just like on the middle of your dial in the middle of the afternoon. But they would run ads for Movie Central. That seemed like that channel ran more like movies that were new to theaters within the last few years. That's right. Whereas I think this was Encore Avenue, if I'm remembering it now, right? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, you're right. I got a lot of movies from that. Movie Central, they'd play, yeah, like, it would basically be like watching, like, a second-run theaters films, like the, the Magic Lantern theaters here in Canada, mm-hmm. if people are familiar with that. Um, so, but I do remember watching Rushmore, I think it was on, like, a Sunday afternoon, though, so, yeah, because, I mean, this would have been in, like, 2008-ish, I would think. Um, and so, you know, Rushmore had been out for 10 years already. It, was, it wasn't a new film by any means, but for whatever reason, it was playing on the, on the weekend, and me and my father sat down and watched it because I had read about Rushmore. I had heard about it. I, some of my favorite bands had sung about it. So I, w- I was definitely intrigued to watch it, but for some reason never immediately you know, s- suck it out. And when I finally watched it, um, yeah, it, definitely a game changer. But it also hit me at an interesting time because I remember very vividly at that same time, I was just like... I was just diving through like the Kevin Smith <laughs> filmography as well. Very much the same thing for me in this era. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, and I had a blast doing that, you know, uh, I, unfortunately some of those films really don't hold up for me the way they do. They're definitely like high school watches, you know, I would, I would, I, would, I have to say almost most of them. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been a minute since I've, I've honestly revisited some of them, but I almost don't even want to watch like Mallrats and chasing Amy because those I actually whole- I think Mallrats for what it's trying to pull off comes the closest to like still doing it. I think Mallrats right. still holds up as a good like dopey comedy. I could see but, that. like Chasing Amy I haven't seen in a few years. Dogma last time I oh, watched yeah. was 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 pr- pretty pretty tough to sit through but yeah so like I mean even then when I had watched them I mean this is also like years after really those films have come out of course. Um, even then I knew that like those movies varied in quality, but I was just, I was intrigued by like the universe that, you know, Kevin Smith was creating. Um, that was really cool to me. This is before the MCU of course, and everything like that. Um, so that, that was really, uh, something that I gravitated towards, but then watching Rushmore and like how you were describing, like going back to bottle rocket and, you know, going through his filmography after watching this one, it's exactly what I had done. And to me, it was just like an elevated version of what I appreciated from Kevin Smith. Not that these films are really connected in any way. Um, actually, except for Max reading about Jacques Cousteau and Rushmore is kind of a, I guess, a hint to <laughs> The Life Aquatic. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it, it's more about the visual style, of course, which is something that has now, uh, you know, been analyzed to great lengths about uh, Wes Anderson. But 
And it also was, the lack of visual style is something that Kevin Smith has been thoroughly <laughs> taken to task for throughout his entire career at this point. That's that's absolutely right. Um, uh, playing yeah. playing into that, though, I do have something uh, in my notes here that I thought was kind of interesting and speaks to that a little bit. Uh, do you ever read the Parents Guide on IMDb just for fun? <laughs> no, I can't say I've really uh, dived into the Parents Guide before. Can you uh, enlighten me? Yeah, so every movie on IMDb, in addition to like the trivia and the goofs and the reviews and everything else, they have the Parents Guide, which is mm-hmm. there was also there also used to be a website back in like the early two thousands called Screen It that would do basically this same thing that my mom would sometimes check. My parents were never like too weird about like researching a movie to see like they were pretty good for just like looking at the case and taking a gamble, and most sure. of the time that worked out. Yeah. Except when they, they took us to go see like Borat and the Heartbreak Kid. So like maybe not, but <laughs> the, the Heartbreak Kid. Wow. The, gotcha. the Heartbreak Kid. What that one was wild. Yeah. Yes. But yes. um, I was reading the Parents Guide for this, and it's really funny because typically, and especially like the more innocuous the movie is, mm-hmm. they just nitpick. You can tell it's just like the most puritanical people on the face of the earth dictating what other parents should and shouldn't be offended by, and just the language that they use to describe <laughs> things. I'm on it right this, now, so I see what you're th- saying. Yeah, this is what they had. Though. This isn't a good, rude, cliche teenage comedy like most. It has a lot of heart to it. It had a few rude comments here and there, but is overall a lot better than what teenagers are used to seeing in movies. And I think that that is sort of speaking to that. Like, yeah, like this isn't a Kevin Smith movie, but it is also a movie about like a horny high school kid who wants to bang his teacher. Like, oh, definitely. When you, yeah. When you peel it back to what it is, it's not much different than some of those other things. Which, I mean, is it's part of the course in a way. I mean, this was co-written by Owen Wilson, so we, we can't really, like, <laughs> we can't um, kind of forget where these roots would eventually grow into, right? Like, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's very fair, actually, yeah. And I, it's good that you bring that up, because that was actually sort of my fear revisiting this. Because I, I haven't probably watched Rushmore for probably, like, I do watch it fairly re- like frequently I suppose in the grand scheme of my life but it's been at least a couple years since I've watched it and so I was kind of scared to see like how strong like Max's incel (laughs) vibes might be um Mm. and I I guess I was pleased to know that it's it's more harmless than really harmful I think it's it's really it comes down to like his uh you know his jackass qualities are really more in kind to um I guess just being a teenager in high school, you know, I, I think, I think it really comes down to that. Not knowing how to feel, how you should feel confused yeah. about relationships just in general, especially for a kid that doesn't really like the way he <laughs> analyzes the relationships is kind of based off of like, I don't even know. Like it, it, what's co- interesting to me is cause like now, and when you brought up community, I thought of this, like, um, Oh, Abed, Abed in community. He's kind of this person that bases his entire life on film, right? You would almost expect Max to be someone like that, but it's never that he's like into like film or popular culture. It's that he's into like, he's into like experience and wherever that might come from. So it's almost like a weird parallel that I think if this was written today, that kind of notion would just be adapted to like, you know, taking something too far because you saw it in a movie or because this happened and now I want to recreate it because I read about it in this book, if that makes any sense. What what Max seemed to me on this rewatch, like I was pretty prepared 
as I said before, like I think looking at the DVD case when I was a kid, I probably was assuming that this was going to be a character I would relate to. Mm-hmm. And I think in the probably like high school viewings I did, like I was a kid in high school who was writing plays and stuff like that and doing really like much more serious than they need to be dramas and like taking himself far too seriously. That stuff I related to back then and I just related to it as like an adult with hindsight even more. Sure. But what I what I found with Max is he's really like I guess you can ch- chalk it up to him being a teenager. Yeah, he's really pushy. He's really like inconsiderate and self-centered and sort of not attuned to what anyone else is thinking, but he's really goal oriented and he's like really he knows what he wants but then there's the scene where um olivia williams the teacher basically confronts him with like what his intentions are and is saying like so what like you want to like fuck me is that what you're interested in and he just like completely crumbles exactly he knows he knows what he's after in an abstract because he thinks that there's something that he's being denied or he thinks that he's fighting his way through the world to get something but he doesn't really know what he wants. He's not comfortable with the like nature of his objectives. Exactly. I think that was that exact scene you're describing was kind of what kind of brought it all together for me, actually, because then it it kind of just showed the earnestness of what I guess what it being a 15 year old really meant. You know, like it's not like he really is some sort of conniving mastermind he, he is just more or less a kid right and i think the film does a good job of making you forget that um and then there's moments like that where you know it brings you back to sort of a, a level playing field well and it's there's like the funny moments where it's kind of funny that he's a kid dressed up like an adult playing grown-up like when he's at rehearsals for his play yeah and he like gives someone some money to go off and buy sodas and it's like kind of cutesy <laughs> and funny but then yeah. it's like yeah like we went to high school with kids who acted like severe grown-ups and really were like super self-serious and stuff and they're like not weird like or they're not normal kids and they have like they're odd to interact with and it's not it does. It's not cutesy for all that long when you're actually dealing with a person like this, and I think that sets in kind of partway through this movie where it stops being cute, even though oh. it's it's still light and funny. But no, you're right though. There's definitely there's a a very noticeable shift in kind of you know where the story is is progressing, right? Because I think you know, and this is a realization I made on the, this watch. It was just how I guess for most of my life I would always. Not that I really ever related with Max like a lot, but you know, being you know close in age and watching this film when I was in high school, you know, there was obvious comparisons that I was making or things that I was you know relating with to some extent. But the older I'm getting, the more I'm relating to Herman to an extent. You know, like just kind of like this, you know, uh, you know, looking back on your life in a, in a in a potentially negative way or like kind of like being like, oh, I should have done that. You know, that I, I don't think that's a you know. Um, a too far off notion to have everyone kind of has that to some point in their life. Um, and I think that's what kind of makes this film timeless though, honestly, is because I think you watch it and maybe you relate to Max, but the older you get, maybe you relate to Herman. And by the end of the film, you relate to no one because they're both assholes, you know, like it's, it's yeah. I think Herman is one of Bill Murray's truly best characters because I feel like he 
is like starting with this film and with this kind of like this into Royal Tenenbaums into Lost in Translation, like where yeah. his career goes from here. He was a comedian and then he's doing so much to scale it back and to do like as much minimalism in his performance as possible, like barely move his face, barely still- like quiver he's his so- voice or anything like that. He's he goes in that direction, but in this film it's still he's elastic really fresh. Still, you know? Yeah, and he's still youthful. Like there's the scene in this movie, I was literally thinking about it, where he jumps off the diving board and it's oh, like yeah. He's like too old to do that stunt now. Like that's not <laughs> that's something a, that you that's not something you would see Bill Murray do in a movie anymore cuz he's just so fucking point. old at this point. Yeah. That scene in particular um is kind of like the defining scene for me actually. When I I'm drunk wh- at his kid's birthday party that he yeah. doesn't like. He's throwing golf balls into the water and then he eventually turns himself into a ball and he becomes a golf ball himself. Uh, it's a yeah, that that I will always remember. Like that was the one scene, I guess that kind of just blew my mind wide wide open. I remember thinking like, oh, like this isn't, um, like this isn't Joe Bit Taylor anymore. You know, like yeah. this this is a movie. This is something a little bit different. <laughs> like I, uh, him being underwater and having the kids swim by him, and like having never at this point in my life feel any kind of sadness or dread, but understand that this character has sadness and dread um was was that is kind of the emo the emo thing about it like introducing kids to the concept of melancholy when they can't quite understand it but they can still know it when they see it well max is like that too max is disturbed to some extent but he doesn't even really know why he's disturbed like you were describing like he doesn't sure he he wants to you know um have a relationship with this teacher but he doesn't even really know why you know and, and there's not even like a like a, a, a tropey scene of him like describing why he loves her so much or something like that he just decides immediately well i'm dedicating my life to her it, it, it's... well and it's not a, it's not a sweet romance like you can mm-hmm. see that she is you know like whatever an enchanting woman or you can see how both max and herman would have a crush on this woman just yeah, kind sure of from 20 feet away or something like that but yeah, it's it's certainly nothing about the connection that she has with either of these men or what either of these men has to offer to her, or, or at least really... Max, at least Max for for sure. I mean, it's Max a, it's for sure. It's implied her and Herman had some kind of connection, maybe I, I don't know. But I think the way Max handles things is, um, again, watching it, it just it made sense. Like, okay, like this, this is this is a fifteen year old high school student. Like, they're he is handling it the best way that he thinks he can. But at the end of the day, he still lacks life experience, right? And he's still a teenager. So, like, there's this inherent disconnect that us as the viewer understand, but he doesn't understand, and he tries his best to make us believe him in any way possible. And for a good part of the film, we we, we kind of fall for it, right? Like, there is something very charming about, uh, you know, the character of Max, but it's also, um, you know, it's fragile, too. We, we can kind of see through his bullshit in a sense, right? He has the breakdown, well, he has the breakdown when uh, someone gets a line incorrect in one of his plays, <laughs> and then he later snaps at the teacher and he says, you hurt my feelings, tonight was important to me, yeah, which was yeah. definitely a line that I would like, quoting the movie, but also realizing how close to home that was for me, that was something that I would like throw around to my friends quite a bit 
in high school and kind of in the era when I was watching this movie quite a bit. That was a hard then, scene to watch. It's a, that's a, that's that's always one that's kind of like um, very bombbackian. <laughs> like it's kind of like cringe-inducing in a way. It's um, got a bit of that. Yeah, that's the less um, you meant. You bring up bombback, and I feel like he is one of the Anderson acolytes, kind of one of the people that come in the wave afterwards. Even though they're sort of contemporaries to a degree. Well, Wes uh, produced Squid and the Whale, so they Squid are Squid and the Whale, and then I th- and then I think perhaps something one as well. to do with kicking and screaming, like because oh, Bombac yeah. was like that's was already film, making right? films at this point, yeah, right. Um, but that's the Wes Anderson side. There's like goofy twee comedies, and there's stuff that I like, sort of like Napoleon Dynamite that comes in the wave after this. Yeah, that's just yeah. much more on the awkward and goofy side. And then what I always find rewatching Wes Anderson movies or seeing new ones when they come out is it's all the window dressing and it's all very pretty. And then there's like some very, very dark content at the heart of the movies. And that's like the bomb back side of things that I feel like people sort of forget about and it gets lost in conversations about Wes Anderson sometimes because we are so interested in the the style i guess cool the cool framing and like the nice soundtrack music and stuff like that well i mean a lot of his characters i mean just off the top of my head at least like half of his filmography i mean they directly deal with trauma or you know mental illness of some kind right even i mean even mm-hmm. like the way like this film is kind of uh, categorized and broken down into chapters or using the months of the year you know, kind of reflects is, f- reflects like stages of grieving or something like that, or stages of you know uh, Max's um, you know mental process at the time. So you're right, even though there is kind of like I wouldn't even really say like hijinks, but there is like um, there there is a lot of uh, character on screen, but there's always like at at the heart of the story something quite uh, you know uh, admirable or something you know really sincere. Um, and I think that's interesting because with, with Wes, I feel like that is something he really, you know, pays attention to and really wants to, you know, hit home. When I when I think of Wes Anderson, I always compare him to Quentin Tarantino because like, I feel like they come from similar approaches where they're like hyper aware of style and film history. But they they obviously use those approaches in very different ways. And I, I lean more towards this kind of more reserved approach. Uh, I still like some of Tarantino's films, obviously, but um, I, I I just think like those two are like kind of like polar opposites on the same on the same spectrum, I suppose. Where you know this is kind of something like Rushmore too, where he there, there's a lot of you know pulling from like Kubrick films and like Barry Lyndon and mm-hmm. uh, Apocalypse Now and, th- and things like that, where you can tell that like you know he had seen something from one movie and he wanted to do it in his movie and. You know, it's maybe not necessarily homage, but it's more appreciation, which which gets talked about a lot with something like Tarantino, of course. But I think with Wes, since there is that heart at the center of it and at the intention of it, it's a lot more effective and um, resonates in di- in different ways. And that's something I've really always appreciated about his work, even going forward. Um, now to the point where it's less him borrowing from from other films and more so he's been cemented as his own style, which, I mean, at the end of the day, is nothing but, you know, impressive. 
Yeah, I the Tarantino comparison is interesting. I I think I see what you mean there a little bit. I when I think of those two, a word that comes to mind for me that's kind of an easy word to lean back on, but like postmodernism in a bit of a way of like pulling styles from a lot of different sources and kind of really casting a wide net as far as where you're going to pull from and what you're going to take inspiration from. But then you're going to put that through a very narrow funnel and end up with something that's pretty much the sum of all those parts made into a very unique package. Mm -hmm. And then I think, yeah, both of them have spent a lot of the latter half of their careers, yeah, kind of polishing and really refining a style and working the kinks out of it. Because I think specifically for Wes Anderson, um, Moonrise Kingdom... Yeah. As being like a crossover point where he took his style cuz I I hadn't I haven't seen Darjeeling Limited and then he had the Fantastic Mr. Fox. So this was his first like live action feature film in several years when it came out. And I just remember thinking that one like he took his visual style and his aesthetic and everything like that and ramped it up to just like 11 and then he's, he's basically totally. stayed in that mode since then to the point where something like Rushmore looks a little bit scaled back or it looks restrained to be certain. Well, that and that's why this one has always been my favorite. I do. I mean, I, I don't think I can say I really dislike any of Wes's films. I, I like them all more or less. Um, but Rushmore for me, you know, besides the embarrassing depths that I've got into on why I like it already, but um, the... It it is that it is that kind of dialed back nature of it that really works for me because like in retrospect watching it now, twenty twenty one you obviously can pick up on you know the Wes Anderson isms that we kind of immediately recognize they're there but at the same time it it has elements of like something like Bottle Rocket or something that might have been more contemporary uh, in nineteen ninety eight so it it feels less of a time capsule, but at the same time, it feels less of a, of a parody as well. It, it's, it's, it's unique in that way where he's able to kind of still teeter on both, uh, both ends there. And I think that will always, you know, reign more and more true. I mean, even I've seen the trailer for like the French dispatch that seems more in line with his last film, few films. It does not really seem dialed uh, down to me in any way. Not that that's a really a bad thing, but that's why I can appreciate something like Rushmore do you a bit feel more. do you feel like having seen that trailer like you have any idea what that movie is going to be about oh i couldn't tell you a single fucking thing i have no idea what that movie's going to be about no no clue at all it, it looks good though yeah oh i'm game i mean sure why not like i think he's kind of he's leaned into what like you said like post moonrise kingdom i guess he's he's really leaned into what people were at that time constantly pointing out about his films um, but he's done it in a way that's effective. And so I don't know. I don't really have any problem with that. Um, I could see me getting burnt out on that if he made a film every two years, but he doesn't do that. So that way I'm able to kind of appreciate when a new film does come out. Mm-hmm. But I guess to go back on kind of that Tarantino comparison a little bit, I think more or less what I was trying to get at is kind of, you know, in a post like VHS world and like the indie cinema boom of the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, like that, that's when we start to have like filmmakers that, you know, it's like a second generation after like, you know, your Scorsese's and other filmmakers who, you know, were students of cinema and then created their own cinema. This is kind of a postmodernism, postmodernistic approach to it where it's, you know, either turning it on its head, coming at it from a different angle, 
or, you know, rejecting it entirely, but always through the lens of a historical point of view with, with a reference point always. And that in itself is what really works about something like Rushmore and maybe what Wes, you know, as a filmmaker has continued to do because it's not like he's really shoving anything in your face. It's more like everything is intentional and that's really, really apparent with like the set design and, you know, music choices and everything. It's like this constructed, you know, piece. It's it's, every film is like that, but obviously some films are better than others and some films are more effective in certain um, aspects than others. Um, But things like Rushmore and maybe some of his other works as well, they do kind of just feel like a total package and, you know, a package for packages, packages sake, I guess. It's like a really intentional way to, you know, construct construct things meticulously, but not in a way that's also really annoying. Um, Some critics would probably say that about some of his other films, but I think for this one in particular, it's in a really impressive and uh, kind of heartwarming way, if anything. So here's a question for you. Uh, David Lynch, he has the movie that he made for Disney, which I've never seen. But oh, I've never seen that seen either. That? No, I've never seen but, that. But yeah, he just has like a straight up like a Disney like family drama or something like that that he right. made that I guess has is like nothing like, you know, the rest of his other work. Do you think Wes Anderson has like, like there was that SNL sketch a few years ago about the Wes Anderson <laughs> horror movie and stuff like that? Right. Do you think do you think he has a movie in him that's like whether it's a different kind of comedy or a like more serious drama or something like that? Do you think he has a movie in him that's really nothing like basically everything else cuz there is a and they're not homogenous but his movies do yeah, they are a package. They do kind of none of them stand out that much more than the rest of them I find. That's a good point. Um and I think that's become more and more apparent as, you know, his uh, filmography grows. But to say that he could just put out one that's like, do you mean like a left turn or do you mean one that's like um, for the masses or what do you sort of uh, mean? Is, I'm just wondering if he like we're not calling him a one trick pony, but he's like we said, he's got his style and he's worked mm-hmm. so hard to refine the style and make it look the certain way. Right, right. OK, and well, it's think- kind of. He can scale that back. He can continue to get more indulgent with that. Or do you think he's got something in him where he could do something that is completely different than the rest of his movies, even if it was just a one-off? I think he does have it in him. I think um, it really just comes down if he would even want to do that. And I think right now it feels like he probably doesn't, uh, which is fine. Um, Maybe he himself would even argue that something like Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs is that but i think that's really not the case because more or less those are just stop motion moonrise kingdoms um but i i think he has it in him i I would be really interested to see you know what he could because i mean even even watch bottle rocket bottle rocket is definitely the most um drastically different film from his filmography but of course that's his first film so you know you kind of have to look at it through that lens um but if he were to put something out like in that vein even or totally different um i think at the very least it'd be you know very interesting to see because his i mean i don't know his batting average is pretty strong like it's not like um even like isle of dogs i haven't seen since it came out i'm not sure if i would like it as much as i did when i first saw it but even then i don't think i would like downright despise the film so you know i think um more or less you know i, I would be excited to see anything that the, the, the guy puts out it's um 
it's it's a fun sort of way to see him progress, but then sort of say stay stagnant, but still be successful. Not many other directors can really say that, I guess. I you have to wonder, you know, like with the state of Hollywood, state of Hollywood, the way that it is right now, um, if like what kind of budgets he's going to be able to command in like ten, fifteen years, who he's going to be casting in his movies? Because I mean, as he gets older, he's had so many great older faces in his films. Right, right. We're still we're still going to have like our modern young stars of today aging into those parts, but a lot of these people who occupy like the deep ensembles in these movies, they're not going to be around forever. So if we, if we still have Wes Anderson making movies in another 20, 30 years, which is very, very much in the cards. Like if, if anyone's going to still be making films, then he might be one of them. I think, I think he's kind of set himself up in a good way. Cause he has this kind of like cast of characters, right. That he carries along, but then he does have folks like Jason Schwartzman and maybe even, uh, Timothy uh, coming up here like I think he'll just keep using them until they're old and gray or until he's old and gray um, or until you know Jason Schwartzman you know rejoins Phantom Planet whatever happens first bringing bringing Timothy Chalamet into the fold um, I think that's pretty cool honestly like as it's far a good as move, people yeah. people that I would like to see working with him or like good uses for Timothy Chalamet totally I think that's a I mean I think when most of us read that or saw that it just kind of it was like made perfect sense wasn't really like we were a, we were all nodding our heads yes as right, we were right. reading our perfectly <clears throat> symmetrical newspaper headlines and everything like that yes yes right right <laughs> yes that is that is exactly right i think timothy you know he's kind of the, the the person in the spotlight right now i suppose um but at the same time it there's certain actors that kind of have this like wes anderson quality i guess and i i, I could see him you know, not only having that quality, but also maybe coming out of his comfort zone in an interesting way. So, yeah, I'm definitely excited to see that. Um, I'm also excited to see like where, you know, the style progresses, not even just visually, but like musically. That's one thing I've seen with Wes a lot, like his his appreciation for like kind of like, I guess, what would it be like twee, like twee music is is, is always I would really, say twee. Yes, is, is always really interesting. And I think um some of his some of his films are really good examples of that. This one included. I mean, you have, you know, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo and Rugrats fame uh, <laughs> doing music for Rushmore, uh, which I mean, uh, Devo and Rugrats, those two together basically describe my whole life. So mm-hmm. only makes sense. Uh, him kind of peeling back the layers for for his films in such a way where he he includes elements like that are really interesting to me or choosing composers like that are really really special and i think that's something uh going forward i would maybe like to see more i guess like I would, i'd like to see kind of more like um not zany but I'd, I'd like to see more interesting choices like that so we'll see how things progress for him but i think i think the legacy of of wes is is interesting because it is sort of it was it is sort of insular in a way like there's kind of this like hive mind mentality of like west stands that i think i definitely was a part of at one point in a i mean i i just try not to really stand anything now i guess is kind of my 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 mentality but i can understand we're getting uh, a bit old to stand it's okay to just admit it. <laughs> it exactly so i i just uh but I can understand like how you could get so engrossed into something like this and into something into a certain kind of filmmaking like this. Um, because I, at the end of the day for myself and maybe for yourself, like it, it, it just leads to so much more. 
um, it is kind of like, you know, you always hear about like, you know, people learning about Nirvana, but then like peeling back the layers to learn about everything else. Right. Like to me, that's kind of what Rushmore really was for me. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's exactly what it was for me as well. And it definitely for a generation, because people still talk about it. So for our generation, you know, 13 years ago or whatever it was seeing this movie at that sort of high school age, and I'm sure there's kids now who, have grown up with Wes Anderson being the Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest, you know, a favorite of your parents or something like that. Right. But then going back and seeing the beginnings and seeing something like Rushmore, and it just blows your mind. I imagine anyone who sees that movie for the first time at that age, whether you've seen Wes Anderson movies or not, it would just be mind-blowing, and you'd walk out of the theater, or you'd turn <laughs> it off when it was done being like, oh, I got to see more of that or I need to know where that came from because that's not like, yeah, you said Drillbit Taylor. But <laughs> I always love to bring up, up any- I love to bring up Drillbit Taylor. What a, what a weird uh, one. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, I guess that's what, maybe another thing I'll mention quickly is just I think, you know, watching a film like this in high school hits different though because there, there's something special obviously to like the coming of age film um, being experienced while you're coming of age, right? Because then they just hit so much harder. Um, but something like you know, Rushmore is it's a it's a more respectable approach to just teenagers in general, where it's not really like uh, babying teenagers or uh, talking down to them. If anything, this movie is the polar opposite, where Max is this like hyper adult-like teenager. Um, but you know, as a teenager myself watching this at the time, I really liked that where it was kind of like, Oh, this is a character that, you know, is treating someone my age with respect that maybe I don't see in a lot of other media because otherwise it's like even things that are a bit more respectful. Like maybe it's like hyper dramatized, like Degrassi or hyper realistic, like skins though. That would have been stuff I was watching at the time. Well, I still watch Degrassi. Who the fuck am I kidding? But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like it, this kind of coming of age story, you know, picking up from even like the 400 blows, it's like, uh, that's, I think what kind of helps this film gain that kind of strength, whether you're, especially when you're younger, I think, because for us, we were talking about it now in retrospect, like, yeah, we were younger when we first saw it. And I think that helps that connection in a lot of ways. Not that it's, you know, only can be viewed from that lens, but I, I do think it definitely helps. Yeah. We're at just about an hour here. Is there a lot more that you have to say about the movie? I don't think so. I don't think anyone ever wants to hear me go on for an hour about this ever again. I uh, <laughs> This is good, though. This is the definitive. We got this on record, though. This is what we have wanted to do. So This is exactly what I wanted to do, because I mentioned this to you when we were speaking about uh, doing an episode together, which, by the way, I need to please... Like, I need to thank you for having me on the show. I think I just bolted right into this fucking thing. I didn't even get to thank you. No, uh, yeah, this was fantastic. This was a great episode. This was a ton of fun. But what, when we were first speaking about coming, having me on the show, um, I mentioned that I had never talked about this film anywhere before, and I've famously spoken way too much on the internet. And so the fact that I haven't really even talked about Rushmore, it felt like, okay, I need to just, I need to do An egregious it. egregious oversight. Exactly. I need to get it. I need to just get it all out. Tell people to pick up a copy of Everybody Hurts on Kindle. You know, um, do what you got to do. <laughs> like, I think uh, I don't have much more to say about the film, but I, I will say that uh, I really thank you for having me on the show here, Zach. This was a, this was a blast. Um, 
And also, I'm happy that this movie existed so that Alexis Bledel could have her on-screen debut. So, you know. Of course, we're all thankful for that. Um, Yeah, I got to say, thanks for coming on, Kyle. This was a blast. This was a ton of fun, and I was looking forward to this one. I looked forward to going back through and watching the movie. Is there anything you want to tell us before we hop off here about any projects that you're working on or anything that you've done? Because you're someone who keeps extremely busy in the arts world and pretty much all different areas. So I won't overwhelm you or make you feel like a star, but is there anything you want to tell the listeners about? Well, I guess this is probably the best way I can relate to Max, where I am kind of this jack-of-all-trades, master of none, starting a million different clubs. <laughs> but uh, I uh, I guess I'll say, you know, I have a... I, this year I put out uh, an EP... A uh, hardcore punk EP with some of my friends, and we're a band called River Sleem. So you can uh, take a look at that. I suggest folks out there to you know listen if you're into that kind of thing, and you can pick up a a, a tape if you'd like at tombtreetapes.com. Uh, and I suggest picking up the white cassette tapes because all the proceeds from those will go to uh, Prairie Harm Reduction uh, Safe Injection Site here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So if you can want to support that, a, wa- a, wa- a truly wonderful cause. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really great. And I'll say about the music, I made the comment earlier that kind of like emo and hardcore and stuff like that in that era and at that time was like a bit too much for me. That is not the case anymore, and this EP is f- fucking intense. I love it. So wow. thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun. It's been ha- I've been really excited to kind of put that out there. It's been a completely new venture for me, really. And in a way, and I guess we touched on this a little bit, kind of uh, you know, uh, just something to cross off the bucket list in a way. Uh, so that that's exciting. Uh, otherwise, if for some reason you're not annoyed of my voice already, you can listen to me somewhat. Uh, somewhat frequently on the terror table that's a a horror podcast that i'm on with uh two other folks uh, mitch and boozy uh, based out of saskatoon saskatchewan uh where we cover the horror genre my role on the show in a sense is kind of like i'm the novice horror fan and i learn a lot from these fellas and i uh, also kind of bring i guess maybe sometimes a pessimistic and sometimes an optimistic perspective on some of these horror classics and also uh contemporary work uh, but I bring that up because I think uh, we have a really great uh, episode that just came out. We interviewed uh, Dean Cundy, uh, cinematographer for the original Halloween and Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. Yeah, just a really crazy interview that we were really happy to have Dean on the show. So um, I'd suggest checking that out. You can find the Terror Table on uh, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're finding this podcast, you can find the Terror Table. So um I'll say and, that. And I listened to it and an absolutely amazing interview and some really interesting insights from him. And then even I would recommend it to listeners just to get his name out there specifically, because like you and I were a couple of dorks reading film credits and stuff like that. But like when I saw the name Dean Cundy immediately, like my heart was a flutter when I found yeah. out about that episode. And like, yeah, like truly one of the most underrated uh cinematographers in just like in hollywood history and like the history of the classic movies i can't even we've all grown up seeing that's exactly right it's it's that kind of like upper echelon of film that you can't even really like wrap your head around it's it's a really uh it's really interesting so yeah that, that was a complete honor um and we kind of got his insight on you know the early days of horror really i mean he's he, he did the wonderful um 
dolly shot opening sequence for uh you know uh halloween so or not dolly shot a i guess what he called it a panoscope he had a there was a weird device that he had only used once anyway right it's a tracking shot but very unique and you can hear dean talk about it a bit more because he just has stories for days and that was that was really fun um, but yeah, I won't, I won't, uh, take up any much more of your time here, but, um, this was an absolute blast. So thank you so much, Zach. And if you ever want to have me lurk onto the show again, I would absolutely love to come by again. We may just have to do that. All right. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, we'll wrap this up there then. All right. Thanks a lot, Cal. Oh, thank you. And there we have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as Kyle and I enjoyed having the conversation. Join me again in two weeks when I'll be joined by another rock and roller. I'll be joined by Davis Baker for a conversation on Joel and Ethan Cohen's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? from the year 2000. Very much looking forward to this one. I think this will be a great episode. So I think that about all of them. But, I'm, but I also happen to be right every single time. So it doesn't matter. Thank you for listening. Um, and I'll see you in two weeks for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? See you next time.